And with that, maybe I will call us together to order. <clears throat> All right, I'm gonna go ahead and do roll call. Einan Lynch, present. Frazier? Present. Gade? Present. Grimm? Present. Krieger? Murray? Here. Shetty? Here. Silman? Here. Present. Smith? Third event, and Walter. Okay, and before we move on into approval of the minutes, we'd love to just give you a minute, Angie, to introduce yourself. Um, did you have anything specifically in mind, Daniel, or should I? Um, no, just a, a brief introduction. Um, Maybe like, like what you're most why famous you wanted for. to join the commission. <laughs> I don't know what I'm famous for. <laughs> yeah. Um, my name's Angie Smith. I've been a resident of Iowa City for over 20 years now. Uh, I am passionate, like I'm sure all of my commission members hear about the climate. Um, I had served four years previously on the Parks and Rec Commission, so I, I come with that kind of experience already. Um, I work at the hospital. Uh, I'm I have read some of the minutes about biking, and I also am really passionate about bike infrastructure. Welcome. Thanks. Thank you for joining. We will move on to approval of the September 11, 2023 minutes. Were there any comments or corrections? This is Shetty. I move to approve. Grim, second. Any other discussion? All right, all in favor? Aye. 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 And any opposed? All right, motion passes. Oh, I didn't have staff members introduce themselves. Sorry about that. Would you like to introduce <laughs> yourselves? Daniel Bissell, Climate Action Analyst. Resource Management Superintendent at the Landfill. Jane Wilt, Recycling Coordinator at the Landfill. Jeff Fruin, City Manager. Thank you. Um, I'll open it up to public comment for items that are not on the agenda, but I believe all of you are staff members. So I think I will move on. <clears throat> all right, we are ready for announcements. Action items from last meeting. Um, later on in this meeting, we'll, we, we will be continuing our visioning exercise for commercial and industrial areas. Um, we'll also be revisiting residential areas a little bit as well. Uh, for upcoming events, um, you're all invited to the City Council meeting on November 21st, 21st at 5 p.m. where Iowa City will be receiving our um, Soul Smart Gold designation plaque. Uh, we're very excited about that. I know a lot of you had a lot of uh, input into the um, um, solar um, study and uh, various things that went along with that. So be a, a nice ending, a capstone for that um, project. And our meeting schedule for next year, 2024, we will continue to meet the first Monday of the month with three exceptions. Those will be January 8th, September 9th, in November 5th, which is actually a Tuesday, so mark your calendars now. Uh, those exceptions are January 8th, 
September 9th and November 5th. I actually do have a comment. I was marking my calendar and I just wanted to make sure um, because all of these dates do say 2023 and they all lined up to 2024 dates except for December. December 4th is actually a Wednesday. December 4th. <laughs> Sounds like an oversight, but we'll double check that and I'll let you know at the next meeting. Yep. Any other comments or questions? All right, so moving right along to unfinished ongoing business. As you saw in your packet, the Enhanced Energy Standards Building Incentive uh, will be moving forward, uh, going to the City Council. Um, the description of that program is in the packet. It's uh, um, action item um, buildings incentive six. Are there any questions or comments about that item? All right, in that, that is, case. I was gonna say, I think it's, I love seeing this um, goal on here of one third or more of new residential construction receives a HERS rating. Um, Will we get, when would we expect to like hear how that went like at the end of next year? Yes, I would expect we want a year um, of data of that, see how that program goes before we um, um, can report back. <laughs> Matt, welcome. I can scoot over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't want to take this chance. We have another chair there's, over there's here. There's another yeah, one up there. It's right behind me. Note that Matt Krieger joined the meeting. <laughs> Any other um, discussion on the enhanced energy standards incentive? If there's no other discussion on that item, we can move right along to the presentation from the uh, resource management folks. Well, that's warming up. I'll say again, hi, I'm Jen Jordan. I'm the resource management superintendent for the city of Iowa City. So my office is actually technically based at the landfill. We also have, besides all the stuff there, which I'll talk about, we have the curbside collection crews at 1306 South Gilbert Court. So the really cool building with the mural besides the, beside the bike library, which I'm sure is what you're all aware of. And then we also have the Eastside Recycling Center. Our recycling coordinator, Jane, who's here with us today, her office is there. So we're kind of on both ends and south central side of town. So we're really all over on any given day. So um, I can go on and on about any of our programs for any amount of time. So Danny, how much time do I have? <laughs> um, the meeting ends at five. <laughs> okay. That's not what I asked. <laughs> um, like half an hour, 20 minutes? Yeah, I was thinking okay. 20 minutes for a presentation and then maybe 10 to 15 for questions. Okay, so I will do my best to keep myself in check. I did that actually, um, I'm gonna primarily have photos to show you just kind of an overview of our program. So we'll start with that then, in theory. I may need technical assistance. Are they not boarded? Yep. Not advancing. Yeah. Okay, great, thank you. So I'm really gonna talk about the, the, the four or the three R's in compost. So you've probably, we'll talk more about compost. That's a little bit deeper dive since we've had some stuff in the news with that lately. But I really just wanted to give you an overview of our program. So if it, at any point you have questions, 
just let me know. I'm happy to stop. I also talk really fast. I get super excited about our program. So if you need me to slow down, just give me the cool it, Jen. Okay, so starting with waste reduction, which is by far the hardest outreach to do to the public, um, and it is also by far the most overlooked. Jane and I talk about this on a regular basis. So um, we have some really high-hitting things that we include in our waste reduction efforts, but really most people, when they're thinking about resource management, they want to make sure their stuff's picked up at the curb, they want to make sure the landfill is open, and they want to make sure their recycling gets picked up. So, um, But we do a lot of education and outreach. You can see there's a couple tables here that I included for fun. Um, the one on the bottom right there, this goes back to 2009 for hazardous waste and, and a collection that we do in the community. Um, we do everything from table at events around the community to literally the one on the bottom left there with the green tablecloth. That was America Recycles Day a few years ago where we had a table set up at the Eastside Recycling Center with coffee and donuts. And when people brought their recycling, we said, hey, we're here. Do you have any questions? So everything in between, we do it. Um, we also have the Speaking Of series, which Jane is here and can answer questions on a couple of these programs that I'm not as, as familiar with as she is. So we have the Speaking Of program, which is a, a combination or a, a collaboration with Office of Climate. Um, I'm sorry, Danny, what's the official name of the office? Uh, climate action and, and outreach. Okay, thank you. So official collaboration with them. Um, we have the Leave the Leaves program, which hopefully you've seen come through just this past year. And, and if any of you know Marsha, she was our she's a retired city employee, so she was involved with the promotion for that last fall to prep for this fall. You've heard some of the plastic waste reduction efforts up from Jane a couple months ago that we have in place. And then I think probably the most exciting one for me right now is the Love Food Fight Waste, and that's been a collaboration with Table to Table that Jane has worked really hard on over the last year. There's some really cool stuff on the website. We have a dedicated page for that. There's commercial videos going out. There's a ton of information. And again, we talk about composting, but it's really important to help people and businesses understand to reduce is the first priority. So you're all familiar with that, I'm sure. Um, okay, so moving on to our reuse. Also some really cool projects here. So the, probably the biggest one that really most folks don't even, isn't probably even on their radar, is we work really closely with the Restore and the Salvage Barn in Iowa City. So the Eastside Recycling Center, um, that is a city property. Those, those partners have been at that location for going on uh, 12 years. We subsidize their, their rents to those locations fully. Uh, um, I shouldn't say fully, very heavily. Um, they do hundreds, literally hundreds of tons of diversion from the landfill every year. And all that's material that's not going into the landfill. So it's my understanding there's a lot of interest in construction and demolition waste on the commission, and they're, they're doing a lot. So we support them really heavily in that. It's a great, they do really good things, and um, we have regular conversations about them with what more we can be doing. We have the swap shop at the landfill for hazardous materials reuse, which is pretty small peanuts. We're talking maybe a couple tons a year. Uh, we have a bike, bicycle exchange program at the landfill, a bicycle donation program. Um, I'm smiling because this is actually super informal. It's one of the few things that we allow people to take at the landfill. Um, everything else in our, our permit is people aren't allowed to take things. We have a pile of bicycles. People bring a bicycle in. We have a formal program where uh, we have an organization that will actually come and take them, um, but it's never gotten to that point because they just kind of come and go on their own. So it's one of those that we don't have to pay much attention to, which is lovely. And then, of course, we encourage people to use the bike library as well. Um, we do have the donation drop-off summer events, which have grown over the last couple years after the many years of rummage in the ramp and then the hiatus from COVID. We restarted that program with a little bit different view, so that's been a really fun one to expand. Um, we have the consignment and resale directory, and that's what I was going to ask you about earlier. So. Jane has put together an amazing Google map, which you can see on the bottom right here. Do you know offhand, I'll put you on the spot, how many hits we have, uh, have had on that? Over 60,000 people have viewed that map. So um, it seems like, again, not that huge of a deal. But um, when you look at all of the opportunities in our community, not necessarily that the city has put together, but that the city can support by putting a simple map together and then promoting it, it's really cool. So we're really proud of I'm I'm really proud of that one in particular. And then uh, we also have a brick 
ongoing brick reuse program. So you probably haven't heard about this one. It's been flying pretty much under the radar, but we've been working to recycle, or excuse me, to reuse the bricks that are down at the uh, old drop yard at South of Town. So we've been working with Restore. We've actually salvaged, of, from that pile, we have palletized about 50 pallets of bricks. So there's 200 per pallet. Um, they're moving through the Restore, and we'll be reamping that up, up again probably in the spring, and it's gone really well. So that's fun. It's backbreaking labor. We have volunteers doing that work with us, and then Restore selling them and, and keeping the proceeds since they're doing the, the work of mostly providing the volunteers. So that's been a fun one. Okay, moving on to recycling. You can see there's a huge list here. Um, I started just kind of jotting stuff out and had an alphabetical order and then realized it might be more useful to actually have it in the uh, framework of how much material is diverted from the landfill every year. So these are in rough tons per year. Some of the, the numbers are very... Very good, so the curbside, the drop-off, the glass drop-off, the appliances, those are numbers that we report to DNR, so those numbers are very clear. Some of the other ones, books, um, not so much. The mattresses, we've recycled at this point about 100 tons, um, excuse me, about 100 mattresses, not 100 tons. So again, this is just a snapshot uh, of what, that, what, what our division does um, every day. So uh, pick a couple of other highlights out. Um, Shingles, we're actually one of the very few divisions or landfills across the state that actually still recycle shingles. It's a pretty unknown program, except to the people who are using it, and then it has a huge impact on them. So a ton of trash at the Iowa City landfill is either $45 or $50 per ton. If a developer or a construction manager takes the time to organize separating those shingles out in the deconstruction process, it's $30 per ton. So there's a financial savings for them there to do the right thing as well. Um, yeah, the Met Recycle uh, Holiday Lights, that press release is in the works. That'll be coming out soon. We have our glass recycling bins for which we got some funds for. Um, batteries has been a huge one over the past few years, so we have some great relationships uh, with Ace Hardware, uh, multiple fire stations across the county, and a couple of other city halls, and including ours across the county. So to be clear, the, the Iowa City landfill, while owned by the city, we serve all of Johnson County. So apologies, I should have mentioned that in the beginning. So our, our programs really, we really do focus on Iowa City, but they're larger than that. Okay. So getting to the compost, the fun stuff. So hopefully you've heard in the last month or so that the city has received a $4 million EPA grant to expand our compost facility. And we are incredibly proud of that. We worked really hard to get that grant and uh, the work is only beginning. So um, formally our response has been, we're grateful and very appreciative and really excited and a little bit terrified. So we will work through all of that, those hoops that come um, and as city employees, we work through all those things, but it's, it's very exciting. So if you haven't been to the compost facility out at the landfill, I wanted to give you just a visual overview of what that looks like. So um, at the curb, uh, we pick up yard waste bags, we pick up leaves, we pick not the, we pick up some leaves, I'll come back to that. We pick up grass clippings, food waste. Um, so I'll do a quick aside on the food waste. In 2017, the city of Iowa City started collecting food waste at the curb. We are one of, I believe, four communities in Iowa City, or excuse me, in Iowa that do that. Um, University Heights is another and North Liberty. Those both grew from our program. So I, that is something that we are very proud of. We've worked really hard. That actually started back in 2012, 2013, when, the, when um, resource management put together a pilot program with the US EPA called Food Too Good to Waste, really, again, about reducing food waste overall. As part of that, um, with technical support from EPA, we actually piloted a food waste pickup program at the curb with 50 households. And we had them weigh everything ahead of time, weigh it afterwards, and then start talking about what worked well for this, what kind of containers did we use, what went well, what didn't. So we really built on that to, to build out that program for all 16,500 households that we serve. So that is very exciting. Again, we're one of very few uh, communities in Johnson, or excuse me, in Iowa that provide that service. 
So once it gets to the compost facility at the landfill, and I should encourage you, if you Google and put it, or uh, do a Google map on the landfill, you can actually zone in on the compost piles at the landfill. It's really cold. It's like five acres, so it's really neat. Um, so the compost pile is essentially this prior to grinding it. So it's literally pulped food waste from the university. Again, it's, it's bagged leaves. Um, back to that. We do not, we, we accept the leaves that are backed up at the curb, but our division doesn't do that. It's actually, it's still within the Public Works Department, but that's the Streets Department, just to clarify. So those leaves still come to us, but it's not our staff picking those up. So again, everything from pulped food waste to random yard waste. It goes through a giant grinder, as you see here. Um, and then it's, it, we put in these long windrows, and you can see a little bit off to the right there's the pile is steaming, which it does all year. So basically, just like you would in your backyard compost pile, that's exactly what we do at the landfill. It's just on a much larger scale, and we've grounded up, which really helps the bacteria and microbes get to all that organic material, start breaking it down faster. And then we can use it on my raspberries, which are very happy, and my neighbors are very jealous of my raspberries, in part because I use compost. So um, I just wanted to give you a kind of a visual of what the compost facility looks like. So that is, that is really a pretty quick visual there. Um, so compost by the numbers, so I went back to FY, so fiscal year 2010. So this is um, the, the left axis there is tons, and this is both the incoming yard waste and food waste and then outgoing compost. So the taller, lighter green, that is incoming material. So you can see we've really increased significantly over the past five years, but pretty steadily over the past decade or so. And that's in part to the food waste. It's in part because we have a growing population in Johnson County, and again, we do serve all of Johnson County. So you can see, interestingly, the outgoing compost has bumped around a lot. Um, the material breaks down pretty significantly, especially um, if, it's, if it's damper with the food waste, which it is, which is great. It breaks down faster and more efficiently. Um, we've but we really only, I would say, if I had to pick a number, probably 30%. So, if, for instance, if we took in 10,000 tons of material, we're able to process that into about 3,000 tons of compost. So it's about a 30% return. So um, we've sold out relatively consistently over the past few years, but the numbers don't quite show that as far as um, it's not exactly a third here. That if we, In FY23, we took in 14,000. One would expect to sell about 5,000. It's a little bit short of that just because it's a fiscal year and um, the material's not ready. I and mean, we sell a lot in the fall and the spring, um, so the numbers are a little bit off because of that. But this gives you a general idea of we make a lot of compost and we sell a lot of compost. Okay, so this is the, essentially, I wanted to spend a little bit more time talking about the uh, the EPA funding. So we were one of two awards in Iowa. One was two DNR for some funding for education, but we were actually one of 25 applications funded across the country out of about 280. So we're super excited about this. Our compost facility currently is about five acres, and you can see if you've been there and driven through, it's it's like driving through the parking lot at South Riverside. It's kind of teeth chattering from all the bumps. So you can see off to the left here, there's some definite areas that have been pitted. Um, we have to make sure that we're treating all that runoff properly so it's not getting out into the environment. So um, we, we really need to do a better job with that. And we've been building a case for that through the city's CIP program for funding to be able to build and improve that. So we had a pretty significant chunk of money set aside for this year. We had $300,000 already in the budget, and then we had another $300,000 in the budget for a compost turner. We essentially use that money to, to make the case to EPA that we're doing all of these really great things, um, but we need to do more now, and we need money to do that. So I think that was kind of what helped us get that funding. 
So you can see again the, on the left there. So we'll resurface that five-acre compost area so we don't have all those pits and areas that catch the, the runoff. And then we're going to add an additional two acres. Between those two things and the turner, which we'll be purchasing, we'll actually be able to take in about an additional 5,000 tons per year. We'll be able to take, there's more going to be more room, and we'll be able to move the material through faster. As I mentioned, adding the food waste helps things break down faster because there's more moisture, more nitrogen. It's like adding grass in the, to your compost pile in the spring. It really gets stuff revved up. So we'll be able to move a lot a lot of more material through a lot faster. And then also part of the funding was to expand the, the drop-off pilot that we did this summer across Johnson County. So we'll be looking at how to do that. Um, the pilot that we had was basically an opportunity for residents to drop off food waste at a location instead of having to take it all the way to the landfill or to have it at the curb. So I mentioned um, the 16,500 households that we serve in Iowa City have access through the yellow cart, the yellow lidded cart, but there's a lot of households in Iowa City that don't have access to that. So that's anything that's a fiveplex or larger, which is about another six, totally roughly at another 16,000 households. So we, our curbside services only serve roughly half of, of Iowa City. So there's a lot of missed opportunity there. There's a lot of food waste going into the landfill that doesn't have to be there. In addition, um, the, a lot of the outreach efforts that we've done over the years have been to businesses, especially grocery stores and restaurants, to essentially reduce food waste. The, the second question to that is always, well, can you compost it? And our answer has been, because of our capacity issue, um, we're, so I should back up, we're currently limited to 15,000 tons per year. Um, we've expanded that just a little bit over the past couple of years, but we've, every time we expand that, we bump up against it really quickly. So we've, we've been telling businesses we can't really handle any more material. This grant will let us be able to handle that material, so that's very exciting. Um, so the expanding the drop-off program to the residents, additional residents, rather than those that just have it now at the curb, and then being able to reach out to businesses and grocery stores and to help them understand how to reduce food waste and then what to do with what they have, um, that they do, excuse me, that they are producing. So things like, you know, we talk about banana peels and things like that. But there's, there's always, in a large-scale system like we have for a food system, there's always food that's going to need to be composted. So um, we are very excited about that opportunity. Um, this is a really boring slide, but I wanted to keep the exact language in because I knew you would all appreciate it. So we used, as part of the EPA grant application, we used the WARM model. I'm going to let you, pun intended, digest that for just a second while I get some water. Excuse me. So just to summarize briefly, um, we, we set the, the grant application up to be able to expand pretty consistently over a few years so we weren't throwing ourselves into something that we couldn't handle. Um, the plan is to plan out the facility in 2024, build the facility in 2025, and then start ramping up from there. So we're looking at expanding, as you can see, the, the metric tons of carbon equivalents of what we're looking at for, for reducing there. This really is... Um, I have grand plans for our compost facility, so let me start with that. This is this is really the stuff that needs to happen to get us caught up to be a leader in this field, not only from an organics perspective and a landfill perspective, but really as climate leaders in Iowa. So I'm super excited about this. This is really the base minimum of where we need to be. So we'll definitely be looking at what else we can do to add more than 5,000 tons per year, but this is what we've promised, and so this is what we will be starting with. So this will be our next few years of work, which is, is very exciting. Um, if you're not familiar with the EPA's WARM model, I didn't write out what it was here. I apologize. For for that anybody else know off the top of their head? Can I put anybody on the spot? It's basically figuring out the equivalent of a greenhouse gas. If um, We use it all the time or for things like this when we're looking at if we're able to divert a ton of plastics, what is the equivalent of that? Or if, we're, um, if we can divert six tons of compost, what is the equivalent of that? So there's some really good calculations in there. There's a lot of assumptions. Um, 
but it's been super helpful in helping understand like um, from a feasibility perspective and an impact perspective, does it make more sense to do this or to do this? So we, we take those in, into account when we're making those calculations and trying to plan new programs or expand programs. Jen, yes. waste reduction model. Thank you. It's a waste reduction model. Okay, any questions on that? Okay. So I can't be at a presentation without talking about waste because that's ultimately what still wags the, ta the, the tail that wags the dog. So um, we usually share with, with folks when we're presenting how much material is still going into the landfill, even with all of our best efforts across the community and across the county, um, we still landfill a lot of material that doesn't need to be there. So um, one thing I, I, I'm remiss in including, and I'm sorry I didn't do that, uh, every few years, every six or seven years, the Iowa Department of Natural Resources uh, does a, what's called a waste characterization study. We've participated in four of the last five of those over the past 25-ish years. So we have some really good data about what goes into the landfill. So a waste characterization study, not to romanticize it, it's sorting through garbage. Um, it's really fun, it's really disgusting, it's always in the summer, it's always gross, but we have really good data of showing what's going into the landfill. So we do have that on the website if you're interested in checking that out. Basically it shows us that about 21, 22% of what's going into Iowa's landfills is actually food waste. So we have a huge opportunity there. The next biggest category, I believe, is a construction and demolition waste, which again I know is of interest to this group. So, 18. Okay, thank you. So 18% of what's going into the landfill is construction and demolition waste. So we have a lot of room for improvement um, in two very large areas. Um, again, all the best efforts that we have in place, um, there's still a lot of material going in. These numbers are probably to a touch below average as far as what's uh, this is per capita waste per ton. It or excuse me, per, per capita waste generation in Johnson County. So we're looking this past year at just under a ton, I think it's about 1,700 um, pounds per person. So if you think about that, it seems like a lot, right? So think, is that your daily? I mean, think about it for a second. It's not my daily, I can guarantee that. But is that, that's our average. That's a lot of material still going into the landfill. So there's a lot of missed opportunity there. Okay, and then uh, we often say teamwork makes the dream work. It's usually tongue in cheek, but it's actually really true. We have an amazing team of 37 staff at the landfill, um, including our office manager, our office uh, clerk or engineer, the, uh, myself, superintendent, and then our two assistant superintendents. We have nine operators at the landfill, which do pretty much everything out there from literally pushing trash around and compacting it to turning the compost to taking temperatures. They were doing walk-arounds today for surface emissions for methane, so they have to take a sniffer quarterly, a backpack, they're walking across the grid that we've spelled out on the landfill and they sniff to make sure we're not emitting any, any um, methane and if we are then how to, figuring out how to deal with that. We have a maintenance worker, we have the equivalent of 1.75 people at the scale. Our curbside staff, you can see what we have there, we have 18, um, four trash routes, five recycle routes and three organics routes. And then at east side we have our recycling coordinator and a maintenance worker. So um, we have a lot of fun, it's, it's, it's a really cool team. Um, I, we have to work outside every day, we work through COVID, we closed I think for not even. We closed to the public for a while, but we, we operated entirely through COVID. So that's Brandon, the white glove in the window during COVID. So that was, uh, yeah. And then Zach, our battery star. And uh, yeah, our, our, we have a couple of guys who are super photogenic, so we tend to uh, request their, their photo <laughs> use regularly. They're so kind. yeah, yep. And Doug is one of our recyclers, so if you see him out in the community, say hi. Um, and this was from, I believe, the Public Works event that we had yep. either last House, year. Open house. Yeah. So yeah, we have a lot of fun. Okay, 
I think that's all I have. I think I'm okay in time, but I'm happy to answer any questions or go on and on about any of those things. We clap to celebrate your congratulations Thank on you. your. Thank you. Dane brought the check, so yeah. Yep. <laughs> the EPA was here last week and presented the check formally to city manager and the public works director. So we're very proud of it. We have a lot of work to do, but we're excited to do it. I had a couple questions. In, in all the data collection you've done, do you have the data that really kind of compares, I don't know how to phrase this, um, the waste that comes out of construction and industrial versus residential, and then how that might have changed as you've improved on composting or recycling capabilities? That's a really good question. So the waste sorts that we do with DNR, they're actually sorted out for residential and commercial and what's called ICI, so industrial commercial. So we have some of that data. We can see from year to year, from study to study, every six or seven years, how that changes a little bit within the categories. But I don't think we've really seen a huge shift in that, frankly. Well, do you have those numbers, though? So in terms of uh, and anyone that wants to see these reports, but every year listed out on the Iowa DNR website, so you could compare Iowa City's 2017 and uh, 2012 data to the 2022 yep. data, which is yep. really interesting. Uh, but as Jen said, you can see that split between residential, commercial, industrial, and then you can also see the overall percentages of overall how much C&D and per category uh, also compared to the other participants, so compared to Cedar Rapids or Davenport, uh, any of the other landfills that are participating. So yes, many different ways to compare that. Yeah, and I guess on a more granular level, in thinking about in 2017, 2018, we had a lot of um, pr uh, programs kind of take ground and just start running. So we changed we changed our curbside system to, to single stream. We added the food set, uh, curbside collection with food. Um, we banned cardboard in the landfill, which was a huge deal. So we can see, we can definitely see from 2017 or the 20, was it 2017? Yes. That waste sort to 2022. We can see those differences. So, so that's, and that's really how we look at planning programs besides using the warm model to see what it, the climate impacts can be. We look at what where are the places for opportunity? So the construction and demolition, for instance, and then obviously the food waste. So we look at that data really seriously. Yeah. Sure. Kind of, oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say related to that, on the per capita number, how does that compare to like other communities? I think it's low. Okay. Um, Ron, would you, I know you did the APA, or the IPA, IP, Iowa Public Works Association report card recently. And that was around 2,000 tons or 2,000 pounds per household. So I think we're maybe a couple hundred pounds under average. But there's definitely room for improvement. Yeah, because that's taking into account our population growth in addition right, to. Right, right, yeah. right. Yep. A question that comes up, and I'm still not sure that we, you, know what to do long term. It's plastic, plastic bags. And uh, I still have to convince people that the best place to put plastic bags is in the garbage because it should go into the landfill. That's what I was told a couple of years ago. Uh, do you have any other suggestions uh, other than not buying or not ending up with plastic bags? So that is the real answer, stop using it. And that is a really hard thing to convince the public to do or to encourage the public to do. Um, it's like... Uh, it's similar to reduce. It's basically telling people to stop buying stuff. And that is not a popular answer from an economic perspective, from a convenience perspective, but it really comes down to we have to change our behaviors. And that is really hard to do. So not a great answer, but that, that is the answer. <laughs> well, people often ask, I'm sure not just me, other members of uh, 
of this organization because they think we know more than we do. What's the one big thing if you if you could ask everyone in the community, and it's it's hard because everyone's got different lifestyles. What's the biggest thing that any one of us can do that really makes a, a difference, that really means something? The grand sum total of everything yeah. adds up. The grand sum total of everybody adds up. Certainly. I, I firmly believe it's reducing food waste. The what? Reducing food waste at home. Ah. Yep. It's, I mean, and that, there's so many things that tie into that. I mean, if you think about getting an apple this time of year, we can go up to Wilson's and pick an apple, right? But if you get an apple in January, it's coming from Argentina. It's been, it's had transportation. There's greenhouse gases that come from that. There's the chemical, usually chemical application. So eating local, eating organic, eating lower on the food chain, again, not a popular answer, but eating less meat is a significant thing that we can do. And I, I say food waste, but that starts looking at everything else involving our food chains and where it ends up in the landfill. So it's it's really looking at what we eat, how we eat, when we eat, as far as eating local or seasonally. But again, those are very hard things to help people do because we have our customs, we have our traditions, we have all the things that come with the food that we eat. And the systems that we have in place to create that food in Iowa, that's a, that's a very hard, challenging, often wrought with uh, frustrating politics as well. So that's a, it's a hard conversation to have. Thank you. Thanks for asking. So one question I have about the um, composting is, I've um, I lived in Cedar Rapids before moving here, and you know had great composting there, and then I've also used the um, some of the materials from the Quad Cities, and you know been to their facility, and I was just wondering, um, like if the you know the new monies that Iowa City is getting, if that's going to um, you know, assist Iowa City in getting maybe more up to the level of what, you know, the Quad Cities are doing, because they seem to really have, and maybe Iowa City is doing that, but I know that when I've gotten compost, it has plastic in it, and doesn't seem like it's as good of quality, so I'm just kind of wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, thanks for the question. So all three of those systems are somewhat different. The Quad Cities is definitely the most different. They, is, my understanding is they have an in-vessel compost facility, so they don't have the open windrow compost like we do. Um, they don't accept food waste, which is why they have almost no contamination. So our our food waste, I would say, hands down, comes from the food waste that we accept. So that is something that we talk about all the time. How can we do better to educate people who are put, bringing material into our system to, to keep it cleaner? We, we screen it out on the back end, but it's not 100%, certainly, as you've seen with the plastic in there. And, and I've, I put compost down on my backyard this year also and picked out, went around and picked out the, the plastic bits that are in it. So um, back to the plastic question. Yes, if we can stop using the plastic, our compost will be much cleaner. But um, we also have talked about if we could uh, would consider a different screen size. At the end of the process, we screen the compost, and that would get those smaller bits out. But ultimately, some of it's going to still get through. So it's really it's it's a trade-off. We're taking the food waste in, and we're handling that. Quad seeds isn't, so they're not dealing with that contamination. So, yeah. Um, how is the like the wood chips worked into that? So is that part of your overall like compost numbers, or is that how is that is that different? It is that yes, the wood chips. I'm smiling. Um, the, I, the wood chips. We have a lot of wood chips, so um, we are always looking for ways to to deal with those better. Um, we do currently take in material for the wood chipping process other than just uh, like tree waste. So we take in pallets and. Some other stuff gets in there. That's probably our biggest source of contamination is when people bring in a load of, of what are generally are considered pallets, but there's treed lumber, painted lumber. We really don't want that stuff in there. Um, 
the currently some of that material gets mixed in. The numbers are all included in that 15,000 tons okay. that I mentioned. So yes, that's the, the, the square answer, yes. The, um, we do incorporate some of that into the compost process, but most of that actually gets chipped up double ground and we give that away as wood chips. Um, I do think as we are incorporating more food waste in, we're going, in, which is almost primarily nitrogen, we're going to need more carbon, which is the wood chips. So I think we'll be able to incorporate more of that into the compost piles, which is good. We need to use it more than we do. And also we're looking at opportunities, instead of just chipping up logs or chipping up pallets, are there reuse opportunities for the pallets? Are there ways that we can get those logs out into, you know, the, like the urban lumber program that the DNR has. So we've, we've talked and looked at a lot of those different things and have taken small bites out of some of those. But ultimately, if we don't have to run it through the grinder, so much the better. As, as you increase your volume capacity, um, you mentioned you know wanting to do more reach outreach to the uh, commercial entities, mm -hmm. uh, obviously starting with kind of the food waste, looking at groceries and those types of things. But um, does that also include um, maybe outreach to other like businesses, third party collectors that are you know going to those locations? Yeah, that's The local great. business community, for example. Excellent point. There, there aren't a lot of haulers right now that pick up food waste, so that is definitely a missing link in the chain. We've, we've had a couple that have kind of come and gone over time for various reasons, so that'll definitely have to be part of the conversation. If a grocery store is producing it and they're willing to pay a hauler, but we don't have a hauler, the city doesn't provide that service because, again, we're only single-family homes up to fourplex, there's, we'll have to figure out some sort of solution to make that connection. Yeah. I don't have a better answer than that at this point, but it's definitely a, a missing link. We've actually been fighting that with the school district because we're trying to get composting off the ground and we got a couple of pilot schools and ultimately we're hauling it ourselves for financial reasons and that, so. Which, yeah, may well make sense for the school district, but Hy-Vee and New Pi don't have their own trucks to haul it. So, yeah, I, I commend the school district for doing that. Business opportunity if anyone's looking for a side gig, right? <laughs> I do think as, I say that facetiously, but I do think as the hauling businesses in Johnson County that serve Johnson County start to realize that, in theory, as the waste volumes are coming down, they need to you know, be able to ramp up the other part of the business because the material's coming to that facility one way or the other. If we can get them to separate it out and do the right thing with it, it's actually cheaper. So I didn't mention that, but well, I mentioned part of it. The cost for garbage is either $45 per ton or $50 per ton. Currently, the cost for the organic material is $24 per ton. So if it's clean and they can get it sorted out and hauled, then it's essentially half price. Unfair question, but what keeps you awake at night? You're very excited oh. by the, by the topic. <laughs> it's clear to all of us. What keeps me awake at night? Yeah. Um, what what one thing that you wish would be resolved and you wouldn't have to wake up worrying about it at night? Ultimately, I think that landfilling is a total waste of resources. It is the system that we have. It's a system that we have across the country. We need to do better as a society. <laughs> so one more question on, on the composting and the wood chip side of things. 
Is that um, kind of like passively maintained, like you chip it up, you just age it out there, or are you actively taking and doing soil analysis on like the compost and fertilizing yeah. it or anything of that nature? Yeah, thanks for asking. I skipped a big part of the composting process, so thanks for circling back to that. So I, I mentioned the windrows. Um, we turn them monthly. We take the temperatures twice a week. So essentially, we have to make sure we're maintaining a temperature of 132 degrees through it for at least two weeks of the process to make sure we're breaking down any um, any bacteria or microbes that we don't want in there, any that are gonna go anaerobic or cause any issues. Um, so yeah, so there's a whole process. It takes, roughly right now, it's taking about a year from start to finish for the compost because we're turning with an end loader on a pad that obviously is in need of great repair. So it's a really slow process. I mean, I can compost that in my backyard in my little black you know, Darth Vader helmet compost tub. So if we had, um, with the, with the changes that we're making, we're looking at moving stuff through in probably about half that time. That may be a little optimistic, but with the additional liquids, the additional movement in the, in the processing, we should be able to move through a lot faster. Um, at the end of the process, then, once it's done cooking, um, we take a test that measures how much um, carbon dioxide and how much ammonia is in the left in the product. So that basically shows us on a, on a graph if it's done cooking, if the microbes, if they've gotten all the organic material out that they can, and it's basically to the proper levels of nitrogen and what's left in the material. Um, at that point, once the, the, that Solvita test is taken and it balances out, then we screen it through our screener, and then it sits for another 30 days to cure, basically come back down to temperature, and then we can sell it. So it's a pretty pretty long process at this point. I really think we can probably cut that about in half. Heavy metals. Are those yeah, in thanks for the well. testing part of that. So we test once per year currently, um, including heavy metals, fecal coliform, um, a handful of other things. I'm happy to share those with you if, if anyone would like to see those. Um, we do that in July every year. And then also with the grant, we're looking at incre um, being becoming part of the U.S. Composting Council's standard test assurance. So essentially that would get back to your question earlier too about the contamination levels. This would show the public that we're meeting all of the criteria that DNR and EPA or, or the U.S. Composting Council, excuse me, have set out for us. So we're meeting all of those now. And our last test, frankly, said we have 0% compost, or excuse me, 0% contamination. Uh, we know that's not the case. So uh, we're, we're passing all of those things, including heavy metals, but we know in the contamination that's just you take a sample, a grab sample of 12 places along a compost pile, and you may not get any contamination in it, but you can see it in the pile you didn't grab right beside it. So, um, but we are looking at ramping that up with the with the grant to, um, I believe, quarterly is what it would take for us to become the, the that next level of U.S. Composting Council member. And my uh, next question may be just around just recyclables, general recyclables. Mm -hmm. So, because um, there's been a lot of miscommunication over the years around end source sure. for a lot of that. And I just, just locally, you know, what sort of confidence can we tell people when we talk to them about where it's all going? That's a great question. Can I tag Jane for that one? Please. Jane, as I mentioned, is our recycling coordinator. I was, um, prior to this position, I was in this recycling coordinator position for 10 years. Um, I've since passed that off to her, and she can answer that better than I can. I think it really depends what material you have questions about. If we're looking at clean streams such as our glass drop-off bins or our appliance or electronics or books or oil, uh, we work directly with recycling companies for those. So for example, our glass goes to Ripple Glass down in Kansas City. That's a direct partnership we have with that company. If we look at our curbside materials, which is a little bit different of a scenario in terms of how they're processed, being that those materials are mixed together. So we've got cardboard, paper, metal, plastic, 
all mixed together in a bin that ends up mixed together in a truck and at some point that needs to be sorted. So we work with Waste Commission of Scott County, uh, which is a sorting facility over in Davenport, Iowa. They source sort those materials. So think certain grades of plastic just sorted with certain grades of plastic, cardboard, metal, et cetera, all sorted separately. And then they work with individual recycling companies and mills. Uh, it varies on a month to month basis who they're working with because it's very important to remember recycling is an economic system. It's not permanent. It's not always stable. We try really hard to make it look permanent and stable, uh, but the reality is it's not. Uh, and so on a month to month basis, they could be working with different partners. What I can tell you is we are very confident uh, that the material that we list as acceptable items is getting recycled. Uh, that's why we have a very strong, transparent, honest stance on things like clamshells, uh, because we're not getting a clear answer from mills from recycling companies on what's actually happening with those types of materials. So if we don't get that clear answer, we're not going to put it on the accepted items list. Uh, in terms of Waste Commission of Scott County, they are a public entity. Uh, they're very transparent, awesome partners. We're very thankful to be working with this organization. Uh, and I talk with uh, our recycling manager over there frequently on different uh, questions that we have. If there's a concern with one particular market versus another, just to get clarification on on is this material still being accepted or what the status is, uh, just to make sure that we are relaying the most accurate uh, and up-to-date information to our customers and residents as well. Uh, so if we look at metal, cardboard, paper, they've got a few main companies that they're working with. If you look at plastic, it could be upwards of 20 different mills depending on the given day or month on where they're doing shipments of different grades of plastic. So it really depends. Um, for anybody that has questions on that though, we've got a list of companies that they work with and of course for the materials that we have those direct partnerships with uh, I mentioned the electronics appliance oil etc we're happy to share any of those partnerships uh, a full list of who we're working with thank you yeah one more question um, as, as um, I don't know if you call it a city or entity or whatever do we have a, a target percentage of waste coming out out of households or commercial that should be recyclable or, uh, or should be recycled and how far off are we from hitting that like ideal kind of peak um, result? Do you have a sense of that? Do you have those numbers off the top of your head? I'm not sure that I do. Are, are you asking about an Iowa City target or a state of Iowa target? Well, I, I think it's, it's complicated just because of being Johnson County, but I'm just trying to get a sense of like, cause Iowa City is what we can, can somewhat influence here, but how close are we to being as efficient as we could get with recyclables? Yeah, that's a great question. It's not a perfect answer. Uh, so as you said, there are a variety of different companies that are picking up recycling. So we can confidently tell you uh, what our fluctuations are within our own municipal curbside recycling or similarly within our own curbside composting. However, we don't necessarily have the numbers of waste management, Republic Services, Johnson County Refuse, ABC Disposal, uh, all these other types of companies that are privately owned and run their own programs. And they are not necessarily going to the same sorting facility as us. Uh, there's, there's about 
three to four sorting facilities in the state of Iowa that accept material, depending on which entity you are. Uh, so lots of different numbers that are moving on a day-to-day -day basis with that. Uh, typically what we do, as Jen laid out with the waste characterization study, we usually work backwards. Uh, so we look at that 2017 number compared to the 2022 number, and we determine what progress has been made in reducing, for example, glass ending up in the landfill or plastic or cardboard. And then we determine what program adjustments are needed from there. Yeah, ultimately, a lot of what still goes into the landfill is paper, cardboard, plastic, metal, glass. So, I mean, those numbers, if I had to pick a number out of the air right now, it's probably, probably 30, 40% of what's going into the landfill. Am I a little high, maybe? So, approximately 20% food, about 18% C&D, construction demo demolition, about 18% paper, I think we're about 14% plastic. Metal and glass are low, which is great. Uh, metal and glass are usually between two and 4%. I can confirm that in a moment. Uh, but that's wonderful. We want those to be super low because we think of aluminum and glass. Those are infinitely recyclable. We don't want those ending up in the landfill. Yeah. So yeah. there's a lot of room for improvement. Um, given that, you know, the best way to reduce waste is to reduce consumption. I guess this is a, this is a two part question. The first part is, do you have a sense of how much of the, um, the waste that does go to the landfill from residential is packaging, like from food packaging and just basic day to day? Like, is that relatively high percentage of what's coming out of households? Um, it's a relatively high percentage of what's going in the landfill that is plastic. So that is one category that the DNR split out over the past couple of waste sorts. So if, if plastic is 20, what do you say, 20, 18%? Plastic is currently 14%. Current, because plastic is currently 14%. And a, a good majority of that is packaging. Right. So it could be food, it could be uh, consumer products. And keep in mind, those studies, that study is done by weight. So we're talking about a lot of material because plastic is so light. Okay, so then my... So volume, it's weight. Right. Okay. It's weight. Yep. So then my second question is, do you think there's opportunity to do outreach or programs around, like, food shopping or to grocery stores to, like, look at more bulk options and encouraging people to, like, you know, bring containers and that kind of stuff? I'm trying to think... And then you were talking about, yeah. like, local yep. food being so important, and I'm also just thinking, like, how... I mean, I know... I have changed what I buy to not buy packaged things, but it's like extremely challenging. Like it is, everything and some of our bulk options have gone packaging. away since COVID, yeah. which is challenging and frustrating. Yeah. So anyway, so I'm just wondering if there's, do you think that there is opportunity for that kind of outreach and programming or if that would be Yeah, for be sure. The, the, I think the challenging part is once we're at the grocery store making those decisions, the damage has been done. So it's really, it's higher up the food chain, and that's probably, not as a cop-out, but that's probably more than a local government, excuse me, local government conversation. That's federal regulation that needs to happen. And, and there's been some really encouraging things that have happened with national bottle bill conversations over the past couple of years. So um, locally or at state level, the conversations about bottle bills have not been amazing, which is frustrating. So, um, but I think... Federal regulation dealing with packaging could have a significant impact, significant impact. There's a lot of talk through the Product Stewardship Product Stewardship Institute. They've done a lot with latex paint and pharmaceuticals and mattresses, and packaging is definitely on their radar. So it's 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 really a bigger bigger picture than 
us going to, for instance, to a grocery store and, as a city and saying, you can't do this anymore. We, we really can't even do that. So it has to be at a higher level. Yeah, I didn't mean regulating what they can sell, but in the same way that you do a lot of programming and outreach to encourage proper recycling and whatnot. Um, I was just wondering, yeah. Yeah. You know, maybe there's yeah. some opportunity yeah. there around bulk buying and incentivizing. Yeah, and reducing packaging as yeah. best we can individually, yeah. Making good decisions and knowing what the options are out there, like who has bulk. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting to think about, who has options for, for purchasing that way. Yeah, thank you. Any other okay. questions or comments? Thank you for your time and for your questions. Thank you, Jen. No, thank you. Thank you so much to Jen and uh, Jane for uh, <coughs> that presentation. Move on to our uh, visioning exercise. I'll hand out a blank sheet of paper to everyone. So like we did last time, I'll give you about five minutes or so to sort of jot down some, uh, some ideas. Um, we're going to revisit residential. I know we talked a lot last time about what you'd like to see in your own neighborhood. This time we'd like you to think a little bit more about a neighborhood that you don't necessarily live in. Um, think about a neighborhood on the opposite side of town and uh, what kind of buildings do you see? What modes of transportation do you see? In what ways do the buildings you're envisioning help reduce emissions? In what ways are the buildings adapted to a hotter and wetter environment? In what ways do the transportation modes mitigate emissions? And in what ways are the vehicles or street networks adapted for a hotter and wetter environment? Another thing that um, I'd like you to try to think of is what in what way does multifamily housing play into this? Does multifamily housing exist across all neighborhoods equally, or are there pockets with, with more or less multifamily housing options? And then once you think about residential um, and wrap that part up, start to think about commercial areas with those same questions regarding buildings and transportation and a wetter and hotter environment. And then also um, in industrial um, areas as well. When you are thinking of commercial areas, you might, it might help to think about um, specifically um, downtown. What do the buildings and transportation networks look like downtown? And also along Highway 6. Give you maybe five minutes or so to 
jot those thoughts down. In case anybody doesn't remember, I think I forgot to mention the year. Uh, we're visioning the year 2050. To be legible. <laughs> well, saying? I was writing in my own notebook and I just realized <laughs> yeah. I should put that. I don't know if you can read my handwriting here.
I still see some pens moving, so we have about uh, one more minute. And as you wrap up your own notes, I will make my way to the giant notepad and uh, we'll start the discussion. For example, one of the things I thought of for, um, you know, uh, like apartment buildings and things like that, to have um, a designated number of EV charging stations per so many parking spots like we do for handicap parking. So that, um, so whether it is, you know, um, you know, apartment building or even businesses or commercial, you know, residential, whatever, that there would be, you know, more EV parking. That bridging the gap between buildings and transportation. Like if we were imagining like future neighborhoods in 2050, I would imagine them being that there would be a mix of housing that would be and housing in general would be smaller, like less square footage per person, and highly efficient. Um, and I know we've already talked about in the last time we talked a lot about. Um, like built around alternative transportation systems, you know, more around biking and bus and walking and less around cars. Yeah, I think paired with that would be um, you have higher density to be able to maintain access through, you know, to have reduced transportation greenhouse gas emissions because you're in a kind of smaller footprint overall. Um, looking out that far ahead, you know, it's 2050 is about the same time as like late 90s from now, right? That, that if you think about the change in time of what's happened since then to now, 
um, you know, cities started a whole composting facility and, you know, there's, um, but from a, a building's perspective, we've certainly changed technology-wise um, over that time period. And not just as terms like active systems, like renewable energy systems, but just energy efficiency, understanding that better, improving um, how, by, um, so essentially what I'm trying to say is reducing the demand side, get, get them so efficient that you then need less renewable energies to offset. So that's, that's always been the target goal, but we are steadily working our way there. And by 2050, we shouldn't have made leaps and bounds, I think, differences there on new builds. The biggest chunk, I, in my mind, is how do we approach the existing. Um, and um, so maybe by 2050, we've done enough pilots, programs that we've done enough, um, showing the successful examples to our community that they've changed behavior and they themselves are making the changes. Going back to that comment that Jen brought up early, or, uh, earlier, that changing behavior is the hardest. And I think if we just, we have to continuously, steadily show leadership and work at it. I think in planning for residential neighborhoods, we should continue to emphasize the idea of concentric, sort of 15 minute neighborhoods that include everything a person might need. And for the entirety of the city, if it's somewhere across town, we want a network of transportation, all electric buses, bike paths, and everything between those neighborhoods so that if there's a residential neighborhood you want to visit that has a commercial business that you'd like to go to, it's easy. And hopefully you won't have to get in a car so there's less parking lots around for all of the buildings too. Yeah, I was just going to second that. I was going to say the exact same thing, more like 15-minute walk within everything that you need. Um, I mean, in my work, we talk about access a lot within like healthcare or anything. And um, yeah, I mean, I think we, we have these neighborhoods that are already built that are you know more low-income areas too, especially, but there's nothing around it. And so um, not doing that would be great <laughs> in 2050. Um, yeah, making kind of like the green choice easy for all. However, we do that by this visioning. Maybe just playing off of that idea, you know, we have growing areas around our community, not just within our community. Obviously, we have to be careful about how we grow, expand, but, um, you know, should we be working, maybe there's more, again, showing leadership in this effort, working with those local communities, you know, uh, which are, quote unquote bedroom communities and they themselves are improving, but it, working with them more to make it a, a kind of a, a, a regional effort in that regard. There's, there's good examples of that too, the EV readiness program, you know, just think and that's a much larger region, but just within our own region. That's a nice segue since we're going to be doing this regional plan. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was thinking about, um, what Jen Jordan was saying about uh, a large amount of the landfill being um, from construction and was thinking in terms of newer subdivisions also, hoping they can focus on 3D printing of houses and also um, quality prefab structures. I had read that those have a lot less waste if they get all the walls and everything ready, kind of like Sears prefab houses used to be. Um, so that was one thing I was thinking of. The other I was thinking is that um, in terms of centralizing, making neighborhoods smaller and everything 15 minutes, I kind of wondered if you could do that for recycling and composting too. 
just if there were, you know, composting closer to me. I compost everything, but I don't go get it because it's far away, which I is kind of silly, but I don't have a vehicle for getting it either. Um, but I thought if you had them kind of in your neighborhood and so the composting was there and in your neighborhood, then be more likely to use it. Although it sounds like that's not a problem for them, getting people to use it, but. <laughs> it may uh, be too idealistic, but I keep hearing uh, we want to be able to walk everywhere. And my vision of walking everywhere includes walking into an industrial area to go to work. And we can't have a totally homogeneous type environment. But aesthetically, I see commercial blending with the neighborhood, the neighborhood blending with the commercial from an aesthetic standpoint, from an economic standpoint, from an environmental standpoint. And what I would ideally love to see is no possibility that anyone can draw a line and say this is the right side of the tracks and this is the wrong side of the tracks. There is no track that separates the poor from the more economically uh, wealthy people. And it's again, it's probably science fiction. But I, I, we, you break the separation between industry and neighborhoods, and industry and homes. They're, they're related. They're tied together. They're using some of the same formulas for architecture. It's the same formulas for how they're built uh, to be green, uh, how they're economically feasible. So, no wrong side of the tracks. That's, that's a tough one. And not everyone's going to like that. Building off what Wims said about um, composting being close, I would like to see um, like local food production in neighborhoods, more food coming right from neighborhoods and then the compost being generated right there. And that list is micro farms. Essentially micro farms are incorporated into cities that aren't like major, major farms out in the country that are using a lot of pesticides in that. But. And year round. Year round, yeah, because there's a lot of vertical farming too. Mm -hmm. People would be shocked at how much food you can produce in a very small amount of area. So, Absolutely. add greenhouses tied into that as well. So, local greenhouses. One of the things I was thinking is um, more lower level underground parking so that there's not so much space being used up with, um, you know, concrete and parking lots. And so people have a greater connection to the land because um, there's more green space around. Or just overall less parking. Yeah. <laughs> there's always going to be parking. <laughs> That's what I guess my vision too is really bike infrastructure and um, just the same the 15 minute walkable city I wrote that here too but um, I was in Carmel Indiana this weekend and I think there's 220 miles of bike paths and it did take over 20 years for them to make their bike network but um, it was really impressive and you can just tell the amount of thought that they've put into a lot of their area is very multifamily urbanism. Um, I mean, at least the area, the downtown area that I was visiting this weekend is very, um, the, these 
themes with the multifamily housing units and were you on the right side of the tracks or the wrong side? No, I guess I didn't. I did. I don't know how far I traveled though. But um, but but you could just tell that they put a lot of thought, and they said it took about twenty twenty five years to build this community with the vision that they wanted. And I, I mean, I guess that's where I really feel like the bike. The and you and it was just like shocking to see how many people were out. Like hundreds of people were out. Like, I mean, I just don't see, like, for our, we have downtown festivals and stuff, but when you have these paths and trails and networks, like, everybody was out using them, and they, you can tell that that's where they go, you know, from home to work. I, the one thing I didn't really see was grocery back to the 15-minute city. I kept kind of looking around, like, I don't see accessible food, like grocery stores, so I think that that would be a, a main focus with the 15-minute city is how do we access our food and um, making have have that more accessible do we have any more on neighborhoods or should we move into commercial and industrial I was one thing I was going to add was the um, conti continue to drive the demand side so you know we've had kind of um, some inroads on the MLS realtor um, side so it'd be nice to continue finding a way to work with our community partners on driving the demands of our community to want those changes. Um, and I know that's kind of the hard side of it, but um, uh, that's, I, we have to work at both ends. Mm -hmm. Talking about demand, I'm, I'm, th I'm thinking about uh, the fact that over the years, so many people have left the city for the suburbs, and now it's turning around, and some of the preferred living accommodations are back in converted warehouses and, and in the city, the, the yuppies and the young people that uh, are really with it. So demand, what do, you, what do you do to create demand for everyone to live anywhere, not just the suburbs or just the city, it should be enough demand that people are fighting to live both places. And if they're living both places, then we support both places. And we can work in between. I would add, like, cost of living. Um, I mean, it's, it's so expensive and I think that kind of drives a lot of the demand, like where can I afford mm -hmm. to live? And I suppose I'll live there because that's all I can afford. Um, so if we could make places that are nice, more affordable, that would be wonderful. <laughs> um, I would love to see that. Or maybe pay people a living wage as well. But I suppose we can't, <laughs> this is beyond, maybe beyond the scope of this. But I, I think there may be Opportunities, you know, the um, by 2050, if they're starting to work on the construction and demolition waste programs, salvage, et cetera, on a much larger scale, like you know, commercial construction, then you're also you can also start to see um, kind of the local economy supporting that. Um, and also, there is something to be said about while it can be more challenging on the design side and construction side to use those materials, it, it certainly can cost less too. So there's opportunities there. Am I hearing circular economy? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> on, the on the construction side. Yeah. 
But I was also thinking, of, I thought of circular economy too when we we're talking about commercial and industrial. Like, can we highlight businesses that are, or incentivize, or just promote, like, wow, this is great that these industries and commercial businesses have a more circular economy? Or, I don't know, just ways to highlight all the good things what you that they're. See. Yes, right. It just struck me that Matt, if he wanted to, could just live a floor or two above his office. <laughs> That's kind of an ideal situation. You've got business and uh, fairly costly housing yes. coexisting. And to your point, how can we reduce the cost of housing in a, in a place like that? Well, should we move? I think with the time we have left, I think we should move into commercial areas and industrial. What is your vision for what those areas would look like in 2050 if we are totally successful here with our climate accelerated climate action plan? Um, again, I think it, um, we should be driving our local economy toward a demand for more goods and services that, are in, that have integrated sustainability approaches. So again, incentivize what we want to see. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and so uh, yeah, provide the focus there. Both your outreach, your money, your you know your your leadership towards it. I would envision these that are that we just have more locally owned businesses, locally produced energy, locally um, and lo more locally produced goods that we need that are hooked into the circular economy, so that we're also using the waste from those industries. Um, but we're not having to import lots of things. And I think our economy will be more resilient if we have more local production. I would like to see both commercial and industry consider green spaces while in the planning process. It would be great if they could have a footprint that's equal to or a percentage of whatever their building is going to be for green spaces and trees. Mm -hmm. Those examples exist, mm -hmm. open space requirements and zoning codes. Mm -hmm. or to John's point, if, there, if we have industry that is more incorporated into our uh, residential areas too and it's just like smaller and non-toxic. <laughs> I, with the green open spaces too, I was thinking about the river and how, like what is our vision or what what would we like that area around the river to look like? Do we want it recreational, open space, having commercial businesses that support that sort of a environmental, recreational? Yes. <laughs> um, yes to all. <laughs> yeah. So I was just... I mean, we have this beautiful river, and we do have some recreation and some commercial things around the river, but I, th I think we could really expand what the area looks like ar around the river and what kind of, what we want it to look like. Speaking of the river, um, have, you, have either of you thought about specifically downtown, what you'd like downtown to look like in terms of buildings? Transportation as a commercial area. 
I, oh, I'll go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I mean, I think about it a lot. Like, I would, I would love to see more walkable. Like, we have a ped pedestrian mall, but we could, we could easily have more expanded areas for walkable, bikeable areas downtown where we have less need for parking. Um, so I, I often think that that's what I would like the downtown to look like. But Sarah, I was going to go back to the, the river triggered something in my head about adaptation, um, in, incorporating more of the stormwater management strategies. It could be within the downtown environment, but I was recently in New Orleans and um, saw kind of, you know, let me get back up. So in Coralville, they've tested some of those on the street sort of stormwater management strategies, and they've had um, some success, others not. But I saw sort of different ways that they've done it in New Orleans, which would be great to sort of maybe pilot here. Um, and it's also about green space too. So it's, um, so managing water when we need to from a climate change perspective um, and making it amen an, an amenity. One, th one thing I was wondering about is doing hydropower. Um, when I was in uh, Minnesota over the summer, I saw this dam that's been in operation since the early 1900s, and it provides a huge amount of power for um, the area around the boundary waters. And so it was just making me think, like, we have dams around here. Um, have we thought, I don't know, I, I don't know if it's feasible or not, but it seems like if, you know, in Acadia National Park, if, they're, if they've been using hydropower since the 1900s, and maybe that's something that could work here, too. I guess I think that sometimes, you know, those um, downtown has a certain volume of facilities, services, people that allows you to to it to be self-sustaining from a walkable, vibrant space. Other areas of town need to replicate that within again going back to this 15-minute community, right? Walk that your services that are offered there. Your, the things you need, you create a concentration in those zones, which then prevents them, it, it's a sustainable approach that prevents them from being depressed, which can happen and has happened. That area to me just feels so unsafe too, even with, I mean, you could bike it, but it's just so, there's so many cars coming in and out all the time that it's really unsafe to bike over there, really walk over there. Um, so yeah, increasing the safety of that area. Transportation safety specifically. Mm -hmm. Exactly, pedestrian, yes, yeah. pedestrian, yes. <clears throat> So how do, you, how do you take an area, and I don't have the answer to this, and we have these areas in Iowa City, and not to specify any, but where uh, it's all trailer parks. So how do you incentivize commercial to go into those areas, uh, more exclusive or higher 
cost builders to build um, multifamily units, single units, so that in that part of Iowa City, it's a 15-minute walk to anything that you want. Right now, it's not. And I think if we looked at the crime figures, we would see that it's the wrong side of the track from a crime standpoint. I don't know whether that's, it's, it's not just zoning, it's not just tax incentives, it's an overall plan that, again, creates homogeny, uh, creates a, an economic benefit to, uh, to expanding into these areas and turning them from the wrong side of the tracks to uh, exactly what we're talking about. I think we have to be careful about how we think about that. Um, you know, um, <coughs> mobile homes are prefab. They're high density to a degree. They have community um, and they're low income. And so uh, makes it more approachable, accessible as a type of housing. So I think um, there are certainly benefits to them too that we need to capture in addition to allowing them to be to be improved, but a lot of that, I think, because there's also a culture there, needs to be kind of, come, I think it needs to come from within. Um, and so maybe it's about facilitation of, um, n you know, neighborhood by neighborhood, um, ways of thinking about change and improvement. And I think that's something we've seen in other areas of the community, um, you know, like with the different, uh, the South Side District coming together. So there's, I think there's probably different approaches to it. Um, and I think it probably needs to be smaller scale than bigger scale, if that makes sense. I think having some like, um, you know, bikeable park areas integrated into those spaces could make it more of an appealing place to be. Like um, there's this really great bike park in Coralville, near all of the, there's a bunch of um, commercial businesses, and behind them is this great biking path and park um, within a close distance to a bunch of um, apartment buildings. And uh, my son used to live in one of those apartment buildings, and so I would go biking with him over, you know, in the bike area near where he lived, and. Um, and I'm th when I'm thinking about Highway 6, and my husband and I went biking over in that area one time, and it, <laughs> and it was a challenge to get over there, but, um, you know, it would be cool if there were some similar things to what's over in Corville, over in that area, and making it more of an appealing place to go to for recreation. I think that's, like... If you made it appealing, you know, you, just like I was talking about Carmel, Indiana, move, what they've built, you could build that in, you know, the south of Six neighborhood, and it would be a people would want to move there. They'd want to live where there's gr green open spaces and walkable, you know, like, so some of it is the way we decide to develop certain areas of our city. And I, I think people, the appeal would be there when there's great recreation and great parks and like um, access to the river, right? You know, there, there are some really neat things happening, I think. Yeah, we can expand on those. I think generally I envision less concrete 
Yeah, there you go. His surfaces, more greenery there. Um, more dense commercial, like oh, there's just a lot of parking between the buildings. So Matt, I, I appreciate what uh, Matt said uh, about mobile homes. I inappropriately spoke, I called it trailers. Uh, my bias, and it goes back to my thinking about what can we do and maybe we can't to have to avoid poor parts of town and wealthier parts of town. The right side of the tracks, the wrong side of the tracks. Ideally, we would like everyone within the geographic area known as Iowa City to have equal opportunities for everything that we've been talking about. And maybe that gets into Karl Marx and everything else that's way beyond our scope. It really comes down to um, creating opportunities and creating demand that people will take it, take advantage of. But uh, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough deal. And, I and I, I wouldn't want to see one side of town having um, all green space and the other side of town not having any. One side of town building green and the other side of town are not. Uh, one side of town being walkable, the other side of the town not being walkable. I don't care whether we're talking about Iowa City or New York City. And in the end, we really need to be thinking about this universally. And I, I go back to my early thoughts when I first got involved with this organization was, yeah, it's about Iowa City, and I hope we do such an elegant job of putting these plans together that we're being mimicked, we're being copied by every city in the state of Iowa. And Iowa cities, not Iowa City, Iowa cities are being copied by other cities around the country. And that's, uh, that's a big, it's a big job, but I won't live long enough to see it. How do we, how do we get started? That's, that's, that's the tough thing. We can have a beautiful vision. It's got to go step by step. And what's first, what's second, what's third? What's fair? What's equitable? We're back to equity again. We can't avoid equity in this, in this topic, I don't think. Well, I think that's a good um, reminder of why we're doing this um, visioning. This, the idea is to then, once we have created this picture of where we're going, is then to think about what are the the metrics and things we want to look at to say, like, are we actually moving towards these things that we said? Um, and then we'll also be participating in uh, the regional uh, climate action plan that will be a process starting. Is that next year that that's starting? Um, so it's a great reminder that we're not just doing this for the fun of it. Um, but I do think we need to wrap up for today. Um, I see that we have a confirmation of our next meeting is Monday, December 4th, 3.30 here. Are there any other action items or anything that we need to record? That is it. Um, are there active working groups? I know that uh, um, um, my working group has, the, on the um, uh, benchmarking program has uh, um, 
their work is done. Um, I'm not remembering. Are there any active working groups that need to? Uh, looks like no. So um, yeah, the reminder of the next meeting on Monday, uh, December 4th, that will go out a week before uh, via email. Um, and then, yeah, that's it. Okay. Motion to adjourn. Krieger, I move to adjourn. Gade, I second. All right. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Right. Adjourning at 501. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>